Fans first sports listeners, welcome to another episode of the call sheet. Kevin Smith with you for episode number 29 here of our program. We're going to look in this episode at some of the events of week eight. Specifically, we're going to talk about some of the coaching decisions that were made in week eight. Look at the nature of being a coach and how much those decisions matter and how long they stay with you and they don't go the way that you hoped that they would go. And unfortunately, I had a little bit of personal experience with that this past week, which I'll share with you. We're going to talk in part two of our show about some of the pros and cons of the 2023 season, some of the things we've really liked and, and haven't liked about the NFL this year. We're going to look at some week nine matchups. It's going to be a good show, so I hope you enjoy. But as we always do here on the show, we're going to begin with a player who wore a, the number in their NFL career of the episode that uh, this is of the call sheet. So again, this is episode 29. So let's pick a, an NFL player who wore number 29. And if you are a Gen Xer like myself, and you think about NFL players who wore number 29, I think that there's one name that comes to mind that most, most fans will recognize. And that name is Eric Dickerson, the Hall of Fame running back who played his career for four teams, the Rams, the Colts, the Raiders and the Falcons, amassed over 13,000 yards in his career, five-time All-Pro, Rookie of the Year, Offensive Player of the Year, tons of accolades for Eric Dickerson, and a member of both the college and professional halls of fame. Some people may remember that Eric Dickerson was part of a famous backfield duo with Craig James at Southern Methodist University in the early 1980s, nicknamed the Pony Express. Uh, that was the, that was actually the the probably the nadir of SMU football as they got the death penalty for recruiting violations shortly after that. And SMU has really never been the same since then. But a remarkable career for Eric Dickerson. When I think of Eric Dickerson, I think of three things. One is his, is his distinct running style. Eric Dickerson ran in very upright with high knees that he almost used as battering rams to punish defenders with. I remember <laughs> when we were kids, uh, we would always get out to the ballpark or in somebody's backyard and, and play tackle football. And one of the things that everybody liked to do is they like to declare who you were. I would say things like, I'm, I'm going to be Jack Lambert on defense and I'm going to be Earl Campbell on offense. And then everybody would fight over who got to be Earl Campbell. But my, I had one friend, my friend Tim, who would always say, I'm going to be Eric Dickerson. And then he would try to imitate Eric Dickerson's running style. And he looked pretty ridiculous doing it. And, he, and it, was, it wasn't so much that he was running with high knees as he was just sort of trying to kick people. And we would we would all like be like, yo, knock it off, man. Stop kicking us. That's not a running style. You're just you're just violently like <laughs> flailing your legs about. And then we'd all like gang up on him because his, he was annoying us with his faux Eric Dickerson running style. But Eric Dickerson really did feature that that high knee style, which which also was uh, used by Roger Craig of the 49ers, another great running back of that era. Uh, another thing that was unique about Eric Dickerson was his appearance. He wore the, he wore the goggles, man, at a time when really nobody did that. And, and he had a pretty fabulous Jerry curl uh, hairstyle. So I remember always when you think Eric Dickerson, you think goggles and Jerry curls and he's bald today. Unfortunately, poor Eric lost, lost that, that good mane of hair that he had. But the thing on the field that he's maybe best known for is the fact that Eric Dickerson in 1984 set a record that still stands today, which is the most rushing yards in a single NFL season. He rushed for 2,105 yards in 1984. And that record, Adrian Peterson got close to eclipsing that. 
back in, I think it was 2012, where he he came up eight yards short, rushed for 20.97. But that 21.05 from Dickerson still stands, averaged 131 yards a game that year. And you think to yourself, I mean, at, at some point, somebody's probably going to eclipse that record. But that record, record seems pretty secure for now, given the, the style of the game in the NFL, the fact that offenses – uh, tend to to use a, com- a running back by committee approach these days. Tend to throw the ball obviously a lot more, and and if they're not throwing the ball down the field, then they're they're using their backs as receivers. They're throwing perimeter screens, those types of things. It doesn't seem as though anybody's going to get close to twenty one oh five anytime soon. So shout out to the great Eric Dickerson, number twenty nine, uh, whose record has been standing for almost 30 years and it, and it seems as though it's going to stand for a while longer. All right. Let's turn our attention now to, to some of the things that transpired on the field in week eight. And really I'm going to focus on one thing specifically, and that is coaching decisions because there was a really interesting game in week eight jets versus giants, not exactly a, a fabulous game on the field, but but uh, but some really interesting coaching decisions in that one, particularly in the late game stages. And Brian Dable, the Giants coach, has gotten a lot of heat for this. And I'm going to come to his defense a little bit, not necessarily for the, the play call, but <laughs> I'm actually going to appeal for some sympathy from the audience based upon uh, what Brian Dable most assuredly is going through. So with the Giants leading 10 to 7 and a minute and a half left, The Jets had fourth and 10 at their own 41-yard line. They had to go for it. They're down three, own 41. Zach Wilson goes back to pass. He's sacked for a 15-yard loss. And the Giants take over with a minute 20 to go at the Jets' 26-yard line, leading 10-7. to And the Jets had two timeouts remaining. And so the Giants did what what basically anybody would do. They they ran the football, right? They ran it twice. They They made the Giants or the Jets burned their last two timeouts, and then they ran it again on third down. And then they let the clock run all the way down to 28 seconds remaining, and they and, and now the Jets called timeout to decide what do they want to do on fourth and one at the Jets' 17-yard line with 28 seconds remaining. Fourth and one, up three. The Jets are out of timeout. You're on the Jets' 17-yard line. What do you do in that situation? What we've seen all year long, NFL teams doing is going for it. There's a lot of coaches who believe in the analytics. The analytics overwhelmingly say go for it on fourth and short, that punting or kicking is simply not worth it. But Brian Dayball deeming the fact that uh, a, a field goal would force the Jets to have to drive the field with no timeouts and score in about 25 seconds was the right call in that situation as opposed to going for it on fourth and one where if they if they didn't get it then they they would allow basically the Giants to tie the game with a field goal and so they trotted Graham Gano out there for a 35 yarder basically an extra point and Gano missed the kick and sure enough man the Jets the Jets reeled off back to back 29 yard pass plays to get all the way down to the Giants' 17-yard line where they were able to run down the field and spike the ball with one second remaining. They kicked a field goal uh, that tied the game, and then the Jets went on to win it 
in overtime. I mean, it was as bad a gut punch loss as I can think of in the NFL this season. And one that has had people questioning uh, Brian Dable's decision to kick the field goal in that situation, to not go for it uh, and try to put the game away with his offense in that instant. And I, you know, I, I don't know if he made the right call or not, obviously. I mean, it's, it's really easy to, 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 to look back and say he should have done this, he should have done that. Obviously, Dayball had faith in his kicker, Graham Gano, to make the kick in that it felt pretty good about his odds that the Jets would not be able to drive 75 or 80 yards and score a touchdown in 20-some seconds with no timeouts remaining. And the fact that his defense couldn't keep them from going 60 yards and and kicking the tying field goal is you know just something he probably didn't anticipate either but i'm really i'm really interested in in this right how how do coaches live with the decisions that they make in these close games the nfl is a game where or football is a game rather where coaching decisions have major impacts and I, and i know that that's, that sounds like duh of course right coaches have a major impact on games in all sports, but in football, it's different than anywhere else. There are no other sports where the game stops uh, about every six seconds and the coaches then determine what the, what the next plays will be. Most play, most sports are free flowing soccer in particular, basketball is fairly free flowing coaches call timeout in basketball when they want to set up a play, but they don't set up plays when the game as they on every single possession, right? The game is free flowing in many of those possessions. In the NFL, bottom line, coaches have more control over the game than in other sports. And that forces them to make a heck of a lot of decisions. There's over 100-some plays run in the course of an NFL game. The average team runs 70 or so plays, 60 to 70 plays during an NFL game. That's 60 to 70 plays that coaches must decide what they want to do. And inevitably, there are going to be calls that they want back. And when games are really, really close, like the like the Jets Giants game, there are going to be calls that they play over their head again and again and again, and they wonder, did I do the right thing? And I have experience with that. I've been coaching for thirty years. I've been the head coach of a program for thirteen years, and we just lost the playoff game on Friday night. That is a tough one, and that caused me to get about two hours of sleep on Friday night. We got into the playoffs the week before when we kicked a walk-off field goal. We kicked a, a field goal to win on the final play of a game that gave us a 24-21 victory that qualified us for the playoffs. And then in that first-round playoff game, we lost 23-22 when our opponent scored with 25 seconds left. And the and I'm the offensive coordinator. I'm the play caller in addition to being the head coach. And, and I could not sleep on Friday night replaying our final possession, not technically our final possession because we, we got the ball back with 25 seconds left and we had a chance, man. We, we, we had a chance to move down the field and we weren't able to do it, but it was that previous possession when it looked like we might be able to run the clock out. We, we took control of the ball in our own territory. We drove down the field. We made first down after first down, just running the football. We got all the way down to our opponent's, 18-yard line. We have a very good field goal kicker. We were up six. We were up 22 to 16 with about three minutes left. And we had a third down and two at our opponent's 18-yard line. 
And I really liked our chances in that situation. And we chose to run to our right because the ball was on the left hash. And I thought, I like running right. It's behind our best offensive lineman, our right tackle. And we're going to get the ball into the middle of the field, even if we don't make it for about a 35-yard field goal attempt. And I felt really good that my kicker, our kicker, could make that. But unfortunately, on that third and two play, we got knocked back six yards. We took a six-yard loss on a run play. We, we, we gave up a run-through to a blitzing linebacker, and our running back tried to bounce the play rather than keep it inside. He tried to bounce it, and we got tracked down for a six-yard loss, and we were back to the 24-yard line, which you're now talking about a field goal of over 40 yards, and I didn't feel great about our chances on that one. And so on the fourth and eight, rather than line up for a 40-some yard field goal, we chose to, to throw the ball. We threw incomplete. The other team took over and drove 74, 76 yards or 74 yards, whatever it was, in, and in about two and a half minutes and scored with 25 seconds left on the clock. And we lost by one, 23-22. And let me tell you, man, you just it's just so hard to – to reconcile the calls that you make in those situations over and over and over in my mind, I have thought, what else could we have run? How could we have blocked it better? What if we had done this or done that? No game ends on a single call. Every single game is determined by the accumulation of all the plays. They all have an impact. They all affect the way that the outcome is going to be determined, but it's so easy to say to yourself, if I had just done this, or if I had just done that, in my mind, I thought, heck, man, quarterback sneak would have been a better call. Taking a knee would have been a better call. Anything that didn't end us end with us going backwards would have been a better call. And I felt like it was a pretty safe call. It was power, old school power, block down, kick out, power. A play we had run successfully all game long as, as we had done a pretty good job of running the football. And unfortunately, just in that instance, we stayed hung up on a we got hung up on a double team at the line of scrimmage, and our opponent came with a linebacker blitz, and the backer came through unblocked, and our running back, rather than just sort of kind of turtle up there and maybe take a two yard loss, tried to bounce the play wide, and it wound up in a six yard loss. And I'm clearly not blaming our running back; he had a phenomenal game and did what what any anybody would try to do in that situation, which was get away from the blitzing linebacker. But instead. Uh, we ran it into uh, we made we made a bad play, a worse play, and then we didn't feel comfortable trying to kick a forty-plus yard field goal with our a high school kicker, and so we have to live with it, right? We have to live with it. And I've been thinking about Brian Dayball ever since Sunday and how he's been trying to reconcile living with his decision to go for it on that on that, uh, or I'm sorry, to kick the field goal, I should say, on that fourth and one and not go for it in that situation. And this is this is the stuff you get paid millions of dollars to do in the NFL. At my, <laughs> at my level, this is, the, this is the stuff that, you know, you get paid a couple thousand bucks and then you got to kind of, you know, still roll it, roll around in bed at night, you know, trying to, trying to fall asleep when you just keep seeing the play over and over and saying to yourself, what? Damn, what what you know, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? Hindsight is 2020. Uh, but for the fans, I mean, just, just I'm not asking you to be sympathetic. I think that fans understand it's a multi-million dollar business and 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 you have to live with the consequences of your decisions. And if you don't get it right, well, then you don't get it right. And obviously, 
you get if you don't get it right enough, you get fired. And that's just the NFL. That's the nature of the beast. But Brian Dable, on the odd chance that you're listening to the call sheet, <laughs> uh, I'm with you, brother. You know, I'm with you, man. It's a it's it's a tough call, man. You're a genius when it works out and you're a goat when it doesn't. So those are the breaks, man. Coaching. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for those who are sensitive to criticism. You got to be able to put on your big boy pants at the end of the day and live with the decisions you do make. So, all right. On the other side, man, on the other side, let's talk about some of the things that, that, that are, have been things that we, we like so far about the 2023 NFL season and things that we don't like. And we'll look forward to some of the week nine matchups. There's some juicy contests on tap. So come on back after the break. Took a little break there between the first part of this episode and and this part, and it is Tuesday night, and that is trick or treat night here in New Jersey. So I took my kids out trick or treating, and they went and just collected a whole bunch of candy. Then they're downstairs as we speak right now, sorting it out on the floor in the living room, inevitably making little trades with each other. I'm sure my son, who's ten, is is really trying to work the room and get the better of those trades uh, with my daughter, who's five. And he's probably, you know, in negotiations right now to acquire all of her Reese's peanut butter cups. And most likely in return for maybe some pretzel sticks and a couple of pencils that the old lady down the street gave him. And, uh, and that's a great, a great uh, segue into the fact that the trade deadline just came and, and went here on Tuesday. And there weren't really any gigantic blockbuster deals. I mean, there was nothing that really is going to move the needle on the NFL too much. Uh, there were some, there were some names out there that people will recognize that moved Arizona sent their, well, who, what had been their starting quarterback, Josh Dobbs to the Vikings as the Vikings look for somebody to plug the hole left by Kirk Cousins's devastating injury. And the, Cleveland Browns traded receiver Donovan Peoples-Jones to the Lions for a late-round pick, and Green Bay traded Russell Douglas to the Bills for a a third-round pick. That's a little bit of a higher pick, and the Jets signed Roger Saffold. I mean, those are names that people recognize, but really the two big moves. Both involved the Washington Commanders. The Commanders sent Chase Young to the 49ers for a third-round pick. That's a a big deal because now you're going to pair – Chase Young with with Nick Bosa and and really kind of make life miserable for people. And the, the 49ers, losers of three in a row after bursting out of the gates this year and looking like the best team in the NFL, certainly needed to do something to kind of shake themselves out of their recent malaise. And then the commanders also sent fellow defensive lineman Montez Sweat to the Bears. And it's really, when you think about it, a sign in Washington of the fact that Ron Rivera is not coming back. I mean, they have, they have a new ownership group. Rivera was not their hire. The commanders, while they haven't been awful this year, uh, are struggling. They don't look like they're going to be a playoff team. And in unloading young and sweat, they have now depleted a defensive line that 
as recently as two years ago, looked like it might be one of the best ones in the NFL. And for a defensive-minded coach like Rivera, that's got to be totally disheartening. They've also got Eric Bieniemy, the former offense coordinator of the Chiefs, kind of waiting in the wings there. I mean, if they ever wanted to move on from Rivera, they could certainly promote Bieniemy in-house. Obviously, they could go outside of the organization and, and look for for another head coach. But the mood around the commander's practice facility today uh, and, and on Wednesday mu- must be deflating, must be one of doom and gloom because the ownership group appears to be giving up on the season and, and giving up on the head coach. And the message that that sends to the team is that, you know, they're just not, they're just not trying to compete anymore this year. Now we, you know, we've certainly seen teams overcome obstacles. The New York Jets lose Aaron Rodgers on the fourth play of the season and everybody writes them off. And yet they've rallied now and are four and three and back in the thick of the playoff race. But this is a different vibe, really what's going on in Washington. This is a setting up next year type vibe, acquiring draft capital, moving on from some, some veterans, probably setting the head coach up for failure. So it's easier to move on from him as well. I just can't imagine what it must be like walking out to practice. If you're the commanders on, on Wednesday with that sort of vibe hanging over the franchise, it just must be terribly deflating for the players there. So so the Niners make a great move. Uh, the Bears make a good move. Some other teams make some positive moves. But the the team that really seems to be the big, I don't want to say the big loser at the trade deadline. I hate when people give grades to trades before people have played a single down. But the team that, may, that, that as far as the locker room is concerned, must be the most dejected right now is certainly the team in Washington. So... Okay, let, you know, before the break, I, we were talking about coaching decisions, and I mentioned Brian Dable's decision to go for it on fourth and one uh, in that, or to kick a field goal, I should say, on fourth and one in the Jets Giants game, and talk a little bit about our playoff game. Uh, during the break, I was thinking a little bit about some of the the most crucial decisions of all time uh, as, uh, among coaches in big spots, and I think. I don't know if there's one that tops Pete Carroll's decision to throw the ball in the final minute of Super Bowl 49 with the ball on the one yard line, needing a touchdown for his Seattle Seahawks to defeat the New England Patriots. When they had Marshawn Lynch in the backfield, it was a second down play. And and, and obviously everybody knows the story. Russell Wilson Throws the ball outside. He's picked off by Malcolm Butler. The Patriots win the Super Bowl. And Carroll explained his decision by saying that they they noticed that New England was playing a stacked front, which was loaded for bear against a, a potential power run. And they believed they could exploit that look with a quick pass outside against a rookie cornerback in Butler who had no career interceptions. And, you know, plus they didn't want to run the ball and be stopped short of the goal line, which would have required them to burn their final timeout. And now they would have faced third down and goal and probably been forced to pass the ball with no timeouts remaining and not enough time to line up and run two plays there. And and it makes total sense. Like when you think about Pete Carroll's logic in that instance, it makes total sense. But of course it didn't work out. 
And now some people have referred to it as one of the worst calls in NFL history. So again, man, just another great example of how coaches make their decisions based upon the best information available in the moment. And then they have to live with the results. All right. So I mentioned before the break, we we're going to talk about some of the, the pros and cons of the 2023 NFL season. Things that things that I have really enjoyed and and things that are not not so much things that have been kind of disappointing or I think negatives in some way, shape or form. And I'll just I'll just do a couple on each side of the ledger here. Let's let's start with the positives. And one of the things I really liked about the 2023 NFL season is its unpredictability. We are eight, uh, eight weeks into the season, and we don't know who the best and worst teams in the league are. I thought a couple weeks ago we knew. I thought a couple weeks ago that the top three were Kansas City, San Francisco, and Philadelphia. And then this past weekend, San Francisco lost their third game in a row, and Kansas City got upset by one of the worst teams in the league or seemingly one of the worst teams in the league in the Denver Broncos and Philadelphia, which is now a a seven and one team. They they're I mean, they're good, man. They're not, they may be the best team in the league. They find a way to get it done every week, but it feels as though the Eagles are vulnerable. And I like that, man. I, I like that. The league is unpredictable. I like that Denver can knock off Kansas city, that, that Cleveland being quarterbacked, by P.J. Walker can knock off San Francisco, that a winless Carolina team can upset a Houston team that that was playing really good football. I mean, upsets are nothing new in the NFL, but the nature of some of these upsets have been so surprising that it makes it really, really difficult to try to anticipate what's going to happen. And I think that that from a a viewership standpoint, that's exciting. And, And the league needs that excitement. Another thing I like about the league is the return of defense. The defenses appear to be getting the better of the offenses this season. Points per game are down. Scoring uh, is not happening at just the outrageous clip, despite the rules changes designed to make it harder to play defense in the NFL. And the NFL may not like this. There's been a lot of 13 to nine and 16 to 13 and 20 to 16 games this year. And, and the league probably would like to see those contests more in the, you know, 31, 24, 34, 28 range. They love scoring, you know, to quote the famous Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox commercial chicks dig the long ball. And the, and, and it's true in football as well, but it, for me, it's the chess game that I'm really enjoying, right? Offensive coordinators seem to have the pen for a while and be the ones scheming up stuff that defensive coordinators were having a hard time responding to. But in the past year and year and a half, really, the defensive coordinators have responded and, and done so in ways that have driven scoring down. The, the average points per game as recently as 2020 was about 24 a game per team. And now average points per game per team is in the mid-21 range. That's almost a full field goal a game. That's a significant number per team. So, and we talked a little bit last week on the show about how it's been done, coverage disguises and sub packages and the like. Uh, really, really disguising intentions has been the key. And I like it, man. I like it. I like the chess match. And I might be, I might be in the minority as far as that's concerned. Many other people probably do enjoy the higher scoring games. I just I just love the back and forth, man. And the next move will be on the on 
up to the offensive coordinators to respond. And I like, I'll give you one more. I like that the Detroit Lions are good. Not just because my 10-year-old son is a Lions fan, but I like that the Lions are not just a good football team, but a fun football team. I watched them on Monday night against the Las Vegas Raiders, and there was a lot of joy and enthusiasm in the way that team played the game. They were fast and fun and physical. They feed off the energy of their head coach. I think I think they really have adopted their personality, as many teams do. They adopt the personality of their head coach. And it's just fun for Detroit to be good after for them being such a, a sad franchise for so long. And it's also been fun to watch the New York Jets come back from the devastating Aaron Rodgers injury. I mean, again, four plays into the season, Rodgers goes down. And now all of a sudden, everybody figures that it's going to be another lost season for the Jets. And Jets fans are, uh, you know, beside themselves. Or actually, probably not beside themselves, but just resigned to the fact that, yes, this will once again be their fate. But what a coaching job by Robert Sala and his staff to, to keep this team competitive They've played themselves back into the playoff mix at four and three in a wide open AFC. And that's a fun story, man. I love redemption stories. I love underdogs. I like redemption stories. And it's fun to see what's going on with the Jets. All right, what's on the flip side of this conversation? What are some things that I have not liked in the NFL so far in 2023? I'm going to start with the most obvious thing. This is something that's been talked about on various platforms. I've talked about it on the the whip around show that I do with Jeff Hartman. I've talked about it on the here we go show, uh, the Steelers show that I do with Brian Anthony Davis. And it's just the officiating, the efficient, the officiating in the NFL right now is so bad that it's making, it's diluting the product on the field. It's making the game harder to watch. And I'm generally not one that, that complains about officiating because I recognize how hard it is to officiate NFL games. But the league has set their own officiating crews up for failure by changing the rules on the fly and making it so impossible to discern what penalties are. What is roughing the passer? What is pass interference? What is a hit on a defenseless receiver? I don't believe that the league can clearly define these things. And I don't believe that they can define them in a way that makes it manageable for referees on the field in real time to call the game accurately. There were a couple of plays in the Steelers game against the Jacksonville Jaguars on Sunday, a couple of roughing the passer calls that just made zero sense. And it's easy to say that I'm a homer because I'm a Steelers fan. Uh, And I, I get it. I get that. But The calls themselves, if you applied the calls to the logic the league is using, should have been reversed. The Steelers got flagged for a roughing the passer call that fit all the criteria of of how the NFL wants defenders to approach a quarterback in the pocket. And the Jaguars did not get flagged on a call that is essentially everything that is wrong with, according to the league, the way in which defenders hit quarterbacks, taking extra steps, driving a a quarterback into the ground, landing on the quarterback with all your body weight. That was not flagged. And yet the opposite was. And again, I'm not, I'm not crying about this as a Steeler fan. I'm simply, I'm simply using it to illustrate the broader point about how the referees, they just, they don't know in real time, 
They don't know what's a penalty and what isn't. And it's creating a lot of guessing. And that's unfortunate because it's really jeopardizing the integrity of, of the play. And speaking of play <laughs> and jeopardizing the integrity of it, boy, the quarterback play in the league is down right now. There, there don't seem to be nearly as many dominant quarterbacks as there were just a couple of years ago. And part of that has to do with the fact that some of the greats have moved on, right? Tom Brady has retired, Drew Brees, Philip Rivers, Ben Roethlisberger, some of just these Hall of Fame quarterbacks who dominated the league for decades, it seems, in, in the case of Brady and Roethlisberger and, you know, all those guys really, like, you know, multiple decades, literally. Um, they've moved on and they've been replaced by a host of young quarterbacks, all with with great potential, but who are struggling right now. And they're struggling in large part because, like I was just saying, defenses are making their lives difficult, specifically with their coverage disguises and the way that they move pre-snap. And also because they just don't have the experience yet in the NFL to have mastered the nuances of playing quarterback. And another reason for the, the fact that the quarterback play is down is the third reason on, on this list here, which is injuries, man. This has been a tough, tough year for injuries in the NFL. Injuries are always an issue. But this year in particular, the injuries to, to big-name players have been devastating. Justin Jefferson, Aaron Rodgers, Anthony Richardson, who is only a rookie, but he's still a big name. He's a guy that everybody really wanted to see play. Jalen Ramsey, Jack Conklin, Nick Chubb, Kirk Cousins, Trayvon Diggs, Cam Hayward, J.K. Dobbins, Tredavious White. I mean, that's an all-star team right there. That's an all-star team, and all of those guys have spent time on the IR. Some of those guys are done for the year. And that's unfortunate too, man, because it's really forced the league to replace some of its biggest name players with guys who clearly are not big name players. And in many ways, the quality of the play has declined as a result. So, so in some ways, the the quality that the the that the or the product, I should say, that the NFL is putting on the field isn't as good as it's been in previous years. And that may be a reason for some of the unpredictability. But still, man, it's football, uh, you know. Like it, dislike it, what's going on right now. I'll be I'll be seated in front of the TV every week watching because it's still the greatest game going. Speaking of, let's wrap up the show with this. Week nine is coming up. And there, man, there's some really good week nine matchups on tap. I'll give you three games that I really like, man. The, obviously, Kansas City, Miami, that's going to be a great one. In Germany, the German fans are going to be off the hook. The two games the NFL had in Germany last year were phenomenal. They were good games on the field, but more so the crowds were amazing. The cheering, the singing, the dancing, the, the horns, the music, the bands. I mean, it was just a massive celebration. I was in Germany this past summer in Munich, and I talked to some people over there about NFL football and what they enjoyed about it. And it's funny, uh, the, the speed and the hitting were the things that, that seemed to be the most appealing to the German fans that I talked to. And now they're going to get a great game. I mean, you want speed? Kansas City, Miami. That's a game that's going to showcase some speed. So the German fans are going to get treated to a great one over there. Uh, that game's at 9.30 in the morning, Eastern time here in the, in the United States. Then at 4.25 Eastern time in the U.S., you're going to get Philly, Dallas from Philadelphia. That'll be a raucous environment. But I'll tell you what. 
I, you know, Philadelphia is the city I live closest to. And when you talk to Eagles fans, the team that they dislike the most in the NFL is the Dallas Cowboys. It's not the Giants. You'd think maybe, oh, well, the Giants, New York, Philly, that's a rivalry. You know, the Commanders, D.C., Philly, that, that's still pretty close. It's, it's Dallas. Eagles fans hate the Cowboys. And there will be uh, a, that will be a ramped up crowd for that Philly-Dallas game. And Dallas coming off of a big win last week. That should be a great one. And then the primetime game at 820, Buffalo-Cincinnati. Going to be another excellent game. The The Bills have been up and down. The Bengals are coming on. And it looks like two teams that are, are going to give us a preview of, of the playoffs on Sunday night football. So, there you go. And if you want to throw in a fourth, man, sneaky Seattle-Baltimore game. If you want a 1 p.m. game, you're going to get a sneaky good Seattle-Baltimore game at 1 o'clock. So 9.30 a.m. Kansas City-Miami, 1 o'clock p.m. Seattle-Baltimore, Philly-Dallas at 4.25, Buffalo-Cincinnati at 8.20. You can wake up, have breakfast, and watch football all day long, man. You're living the dream, people. <laughs> okay, man, that's our show. That is that is episode 29 of The Call Sheet. We will be back again next week to talk about all the happenings and goings on in this unpredictable and wild NFL season. Hope you'll all join me a week from now. Have a great week, everybody. Take care.